Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio, Season 3, Episode 2. Today I am joined by Professor Roger E. Kirk. Roger is an award-winning author and Professor of History at Virginia Tech in the United States. His writing has been translated into eight languages. Although early American history remains his teaching interest, he has researched widely to include European as well as American history and even the history of sleep. That's why we have Roger on the podcast today. In recent years, you may have heard about biphasic, two sleeps, polyphasic, more than two sleeps throughout a 24-hour period, in contrast to the classic monophasic or one sleep period that we generally have today. And Roger is the world's expert on this subject. He has read everything from Greek history right through to modern time, and he really understands what has happened from pre-industrial age up until now and how sleep has changed and so some of those effects on uh, sleep in society today. Roger's a great guy. I uh, really enjoyed talking to him. I'm definitely going to have him back on the podcast again. Now, unfortunately, due to a number of technical issues in this episode, we did have to cut the episode a little bit short. So it does end slightly abruptly because we just could not re-establish the connection to Virginia with Roger at this time. But we are greatly appreciative of his time. And I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're a history geek, you will love this one. As always, if you wish to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Sleep for Perform, Sleep for Performance on Facebook, or email me at Ian Dunican at sleep the number four performance.com.au or head over to our website sleepforperformance.com.au. Okay, let's crack into this episode. This is a good one. To tell you the truth, I dreaded having to study uh, anything related to sleep. I'm not a scientist by nature. I could barely turn my Bunsen burner on in high school, but I undertook this book some years ago about nighttime before the Industrial Revolution called At Day's Close. And I figured there was no way to avoid the topic of of sleep, though I wrongly thought that it would be utterly boring, uh, that sleep has never changed over time or place. So you can imagine my surprise when I got into the research. Much of it took place uh, at the public record office in London, at least uh, that part of it. I discovered, first of all, that people three, four hundred years ago in the British Isles took their sleep enormously seriously. They went to great lengths to ensure that it would be both tranquil and, no less important, safe, given the perils at night during that age. The other discovery I made, which was a bit more gradual, was that people slept in an entirely different fashion than we do today. I kept coming across these references in documents from the 1600s and 1700s to a first sleep and a second sleep, phrased as if everyone but me, the reader, knew what they were referring to. (laughs) And equally interesting was what they did in between first and second sleep. As I eventually discovered, anything and everything imaginable. 
So I kept accumulating dots. And eventually it occurred to me that this was indeed a very different pattern of sleep, what sleep scientists would refer to today as biphasic or uh, segmented sleep, two parts in which uh, people ordinarily tried to go to bed between 9 and 10 p.m. They slept for three, three and a half hours. They awakened shortly after midnight, stayed conscious, in some cases leaving their beds, in some cases leaving their homes to pilfer a neighbor's apple orchard for up to an hour or so. And then they went back to bed and took a a second sleep of roughly the same amount of time, awakening finally sometime around dawn. So Roger, your kind of angle on this on this work, you, you are, an, are a historian, not a scientist for our listeners. Is that correct? And you're based in Virginia Tech. Exactly. Virginia yes. in, in the US. Yes. And so when you looked at this biphasic sleep, Roger, where, uh, where you said about, you know, these two parts, why did people do it in two parts? Was it got to do with heating? Was it some sort of social construct? Was it lack of lighting? Was it just the kind of the social norm at the time? What what was driving this biphasic or two-part sleep? Truth be told, Ian, the more appropriate question is, why do we sleep as we do today? Because from an historical perspective, dating back, really, uh, the earliest reference I found is in Homer's Odyssey. And there are a number of other classical references, a, a wonderful description in Virgil's Aeneid. To my way of thinking, unless proven otherwise, this was the dominant pattern, this biphasic sleep was the dominant pattern of sleep in the Western world and in some other continents as well, arguably uh, since recorded time. Why our sleep today the seamless consolidated sleep to which we aspire, though not coincidentally, not always successfully, it's very young in the Western world. It's less than 200 years old. It's a artificial product of the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution or the, you know, the sort of the invention of the light globe and you know, as you said, this industrialization of the Western world, is that one of the main drivers that's made us go from biphasic to a monophasic, a one sleep period? Is that is that really what, what, what we're seeing? Exactly. Exactly. So what what about then, Roger, back, what about back into then, let's say, you know, let's, say, let's just jump back, let's say to the Roman Empire period for people that can kind of visualize that, you know, sort of two, two and a half thousand years ago. Was that biphasic as well or was that different or was that monophasic or... Have we always been biphasic from what? Always biphasic. Biphasic. And do you find that across different cultures as well, Roger? Or Yes. Uh, at least the judge. I cannot claim to have canvassed sources uh, from antiquity, given my ignorance of Greek and my poor comprehension of Latin, uh, but I can tell you this, major pieces of classical literature, I mentioned Homer, Virgil, 
Plutarch, you can add to that. Livy, his history of Rome, they contain references in Latin, which when literally translated into English, read uh, first sleep and second sleep. Indeed, taking things up to the 19th century, I've come across now 15 European languages, which when directly translated into English, again, read uh, first and second sleep, as does the language of the Tiv people in central Nigeria, according to an anthropological study in the uh, 1950s, whose sleep was similarly biphasic, and in their language they referred to it as first and second sleep. And of course, what connects them to people in the Western world, at least until the mid to late 19th century, was a dearth of sophisticated artificial Mm. illumination. It's interesting you say that because in some of the sleep science conferences I attend, remember recently there was a talk here in Australia where a Brazilian researcher was talking exactly about that. So in Brazil, we still they still have people living sort of a kind of a quasi hunter gatherer or in these local villages with no electricity. And then, you know, sort of three, four miles on the road, you have a kind of a fully westernized town. And the difference in the sleep and the difference in the sleep periods was evident in the research as well because of the lack of uh, illumination or light or any other sort of shift work or 24-7 operation. So it's very interesting that these things have a major impact. Roger, as as you were talking about how this developed over time, when you kind of trace this history back, you know, and history, like generally most people will, like as you were doing, will talk or write chronologically from the very first time they discovered something right through the present time. What was the earliest mention of sleep you found in any sort of historical reference when you were looking around? Did it predate the Romans and the Greek? Did you find anything else? Like, how far did it go back where you first either found sleep being discussed in a social context or even in a scientific research context? The earliest literary evidence, as I've said, that I found is in Homer's Odyssey. A scholar of the Old Testament becoming familiar with my research, canvassed the Old Testament, the Bible, and came away convinced that there are a number of episodes suggesting strongly that people's sleep then was biphasic, even though they did not use the the terminology of subsequent uh, cultures and societies. Otherwise, I'm not an evolutionary anthropologist. They're, of course, interested in sleep, really prehistoric sleep. And there's a bit of controversy that's been raised uh, several years ago when a team in the United States of quite prominent anthropologists and neurologists studied three hunter-gatherer societies hunter-gatherers, so they claimed, in uh, tropical latitudes. And they discovered uh, two interesting conclusions. This was uh, based on, uh, I think, around 94 individuals who they equipped with watches that monitored their sleep. Act watches is, uh, is the term. 
First of all, they found out that they that they averaged uh, less than around seven hours of sleep. Uh, so that was a pretty controversial discovery. And it whereas in the United States, as I suspect in Australia, actually, we're recommended to get at least seven to eight hours that that is the norm that we should aim for. So so that that aroused quite a bit of excitement in sleep science circles to begin with. And then they discovered that these three hunter gatherer tribes, two in Africa, if I recall correctly, one in Latin America, their sleep was uh, consolidated, seamless, uh, monophasic. And make a long story short, I wrote a piece in response to this, pointing out that no one can claim when it comes to non Western societies that there is a dominant pattern of sleep uh, because based on anthropological evidence that I have going back to the 19th century, uh, there are any number of pre-industrial cultures whose sleep was uh, biphasic. I mentioned one in Nigeria, but that's uh, one of, of at least a dozen studies that I've come across. So, I'm perfectly happy to concede that there are non-Western hunter-gatherer cultures that whose sleep is consolidated, but I'm on much firmer ground, much more confident in saying that in Western history, biphasic sleep was the natural order up until the Industrial Revolution. It's not just the voluminous number of references now totaling over 2,000. It's the way people referred to this pattern of sleep as if it was utterly natural, which, of course, to them, it was. So, so Roger, what about polyphasic sleep? Polyphasic sleep in which people uh, sleep in more than two phases over the course of 24 hours. Uh, Less work, I think, has been done on it, primarily by anthropologists, a terrific uh, scientist at Emory University in the United States, in Atlanta, Georgia, Carol Worthman, has uncovered a a fair number of examples of, of polyphasic sleep, as well as biphasic in non-Western cultures. You know, when you think about it, people who engaged in biphasic sleep, if they took a nap during the afternoon, strictly speaking, you could then term their sleep polyphasic. But normally, that term is applied to how people sleep over the course of the night. In my case, I might take a couple naps, in which case uh, my own my own sleep might be said to be polyphasic uh, if we adopt that broader definition. Okay. So, so Roger, when we look at monophasic, biphasic, and polyphasic, and we kind of build it up there, is there any, have you seen any benefit in the literature of one being better than the other in terms of health, performance, what people said, 
Have you seen any sort of benefit towards to, to, or an affinity toward toward any of these type of sleeps? Honestly, no. People ask about the benefits of biphasic sleep. And my response is there's really no going back. Not that we necessarily would want to unless you plan to inhabit a cabin in the Canadian Yukon devoid of electricity and be prepared to do that for over three weeks, which is generally the time that it requires in those conditions to have one's monophasic sleep transformed into poly, into biphasic. But you know what, Ian? The important point is that biphasic sleep has never entirely left us. I am utterly convinced that many instances, and the sleep science community in Europe and in the United States has been uh, enormously supportive of this research that in many instances, the most common sleep disorder in the Western world, middle of the night insomnia, whereby we, as the term implies, uh, wake up in the middle of the night, and and can't get back to sleep as opposed to sleep onset insomnia, whereby we have a hard time falling asleep in the first place. Middle of the night insomnia, in many instances, I cannot specify a percentage, but in many instances is not a sleep disorder. It's indeed a modern construct that before the late 1800s in Europe and the United States did not exist. It did not exist. Waking up in the middle of the night was thought entirely natural, again, because people experienced biphasic sleep. And only, only in the early 20th century Early 20th century, perhaps late 19th, does wakefulness in the middle of the night with biphasic sleep having receded in importance due in large measure because of artificial illumination, only at the beginning of the 20th century does it become conflated with sleep onset insomnia into the common scourge of insomnia. In short, people who wake up in the middle of the night, the historical evidence is is quite strong. It was not regarded as abnormal until the early 20th century, and from that time on, it became pathologized or medicalized in need of treatment, rather than representing what I believe the historical evidence suggests, a persistent echo, a very strong remnant of this long dominant pattern of biphasic sleep that had been with us for thousands of years. And when you think about it, 
it makes sense if I am correct about the longevity of biphasic sleep, and I believe I am, that it would take more than just a century or two to fully run its course. Some people might have circadian rhythms, human body clocks that are more resistant to the impact of artificial illumination, unlike most of us. So that's, that's the most important message, I think, to be taken from this research. Some hospital websites like Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States, one of the great hospitals in the world, On their website, they refer to this research, and they basically say, don't sweat it if you wake up in the middle of the night. The important thing is not to regard yourself a freak. (laughs) That's a very common term that uh, people have used in emailing me. But instead, to realize that from an historical perspective, your sleep is arguably more natural than those of us who aspire to consolidated sleep. And the wonderful thing is, is that that frequently will alleviate their anxiety and allow them actually to fall back to sleep more quickly. This is this is very interesting, Roger, because I, I want to bring us in a little slightly different direction, because when we look at this and you talk about some people will think they're maybe a freak for waking up in the middle of the night. But some people, as we know from the sleep research, are more towards an owl chronotype to like to go to bed late and get up late or go to bed early and get up early. And so some anthropologists speculate that, you know, maybe this was a kind of a design that's in our society where some were up late to to kind of guard guard the tribe or the herd, so to speak, and then others woke up early. So there was this kind of spread of sleep patterns across a tribe or a group or a mob or whatever you want to call them. Do you think maybe these people who may wake up in the middle of the night or are more kind of attuned to biphasic, do you think that maybe is something that is kind of designed into us as well, that some people are more attuned to biphasic? Do you think it's in that similar realms of a hang-up for anthropology? Because the other thing as well is that we see is the wake maintenance zone in the evening or the forbidden zone where it's very hard to get asleep. And some anthropologists speculate that, you know, between six and eight in the evening, it's very hard for us to sleep because it may be a hang up or a hangover from, you know, being hunted by saber two tigers when they came out to hunt. And this is when we would start to go to sleep. So we, we became kind of hypervigilant at this sunset time. Do you think the biphasic sleep can maybe would be similar to that? Conceivably, I again, I'm not a scientist and I'm I'm certainly on foreign ground when uh, talking about DNA. One thing that we know or really don't know is uh, when people in prehistoric times reserved sleep for nighttime. There's a body of thought that argues that indeed only once it became clear that nighttime posed perils to a greater degree then during the day, did people increasingly reserve sleep for uh, darkness? It may have given them a false sense of security that indeed they could sleep through the night 
ignorance is bliss, and hopefully uh, huddled in a cave, it would not be shared by a predator. As far as recorded human history is concerned, not being an evolutionary anthropologist, as far as human history is concerned, biphasic sleep, in my view, again, in the Western world, has been the uh, the dominant pattern. Let me correct one misimpression that I may have created. I speak about the importance of artificial illumination. Uh, Unleashed became increasingly sophisticated and prevalent during the Industrial Revolution. First, gaslighting introduced in London in 1807, ultimately, of course, followed uh, later in the century by electric lighting for those who could afford it. If it's one thing that sleep scientists agree upon, it's the impact of artificial illumination on the human body clock. Having said that, there were also cultural forces at work in the 19th century spawned by the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Simply put, people became much more time conscious. They valued productivity, efficiency, profitability, all of which encouraged them to compress their sleep into a single interval as opposed to taking it in two periods of time. On both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, in Europe as well as the United States, there were in the 19th century a very strong reform movement known as the early rising movement, whereby people pledged not to take a a second sleep. And indeed, in international world's fairs, there would be displayed in the 1850s, one in London uh, in particular, a bed that jettisoned you upright, as a way to cure yourself of taking a second sleep. And if you uh, were particularly resistant to that, they put a big basin of water at the bottom of the bed to ensure uh, that you would fully awaken. A similar bed was tried out at a international affair in New York City later in the 1850s. So it's not a chicken and the egg proposition. Cultural attitudes were moving in this direction, which were certainly strongly facilitated by the physiological impact of artificial illumination. Both were working roughly at the same time in the same direction. But if forced of the two, and clinical experiments at the National Institute of Mental Health that were conducted in Washington, D.C., or just outside Washington in the early 1990s, bear this out. Of the two, artificial illumination was the more dominant engine of change. In the case of the National Institute of Mental Health, 15 subjects were deprived of artificial light. And after three 
weeks, their sleep was transformed from monophasic to biphasic. And reading about that in an article in the New York Times in 1995, very vivid in my mind, was instrumental in allowing me to connect many of those dots that I referred to earlier. The man in charge of that research, Thomas Weir, a very prominent sleep scientist who's now retired. I think I can say once I made contact with him, he was in Italy at the time attending a conference. He was as exhilarated as I was because his clinical research dovetailed with my historical research. And each body of work effectively reinforced uh, the other. So, Roger, you've written a, a lot of books, and we can see them here on your on your website at history.vt.edu. And one of the books that jumps out to me is Bound for America, The Transportation of British Convicts to the Colonies. So I'm very interested, did you look at any aspects of sleep of people traveling to places like, you know, Canada, America, Australia? Because what resonated me with me here is I, I remember being back in Ireland on holidays a few years ago. My wife, who's Australian, and myself went to a, a very famous jail in Ireland called Kilmainham Jail. Now, in the early 1900s, I know it's outside the time period of this book, but in the early 1900s, people were often kept in this jail for up to six months or even a year before they departed, departed for the colonies um, and they were crammed into these cells. And even though they may not have you know, stolen anything. If they elected to go to, let's say, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they were saying, right, before you go, we're going to kind of round you all up and you stay in this in this accommodation, this jail, for a period of time before you go. Did you look at any of the, did, did anything jump out to you in, in researching that book around sleep prior to departure or on departure? Because these journeys to the, some of these colonies were were extremely difficult. So did you see, yes. did you see any mention of sleep on the journey or on arrival? This was a book that came out in 1987, Bound for America, published by Oxford University Press, that essentially was a history of convict transportation beginning from uh, 1718 right on up to the American Revolution. And because America uh, ceased being a uh, what was regarded at the time as a dumping ground for British convicts, a search was mounted uh, for much of the ni- of the 1780s, as, as you well know, to find another site. And one of the advantages of Australia was indeed, Ian, its distance from Great Britain, because a problem when... Uh, America received British convicts, about 50,000 of which left uh, the British Isles, was that many of them returned. And it was a lot easier, certainly, than coming from the far side of the world. But to answer your question directly, really the only connection of that book to sleep was that it, it didn't let me get enough. 
<laughs> I'm kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. On the one hand, I write more conventional, traditional history. I was trained in early American history. I just published a, a book a year ago about the worst mutiny in the history of the Royal Navy that had great repercussions for the new new young fledgling United States because many of the mutineers washed up on American shores and the big question then became uh, what do we do with them whether to extradite them to Great Britain yeah. or not but then again, every time that uh, I, I think I've written my last uh, word on the subject of sleep, uh, an opportunity arises that sort of lulls me back, such as uh, talking to you today. I very much enjoy my Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde split personality. Uh, the research never gets boring moving back and forth between the two. No, I can imagine it is. So, Roger, as a, as a historian, I, I'd imagine you do a crazy amount of reading and research and you spend a lot of time probably on your own reading because it's not like other subjects like science or engineering where you're interacting with people in a laboratory. So how how do you manage that cognitive load and and manage your own sleep when it comes to researching a book? What's what's a typical what's a tip what's a typical approach to tackling such a subject? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question. I'm very lucky in that uh, I I love what I do. I love teaching college students and I love doing historical research and writing. Otherwise, I'm not sure what I would do. I don't play golf. <laughs> I don't play poker. I don't collect stamps. Does anyone still collect stamps? I, I don't sure, think so. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so uh, many, many nights, uh, yes, uh, I am doing historical research. And uh, right now I'm working on a uh, completely new book called the uh, Tentatively, The Town That Cried Wolf, the one community in Western Europe after World War One that constantly tried to alert the rest of the world to the menace that German rearmament posed as early as the 1920s. So that's right now my current fascination. As far as my own sleep, I'm sort of a walking laboratory in the sense that I suffer from three sleep disorders, not insomnia, a mild form of apnea, restless leg syndrome, and most interesting of all, REM sleep behavior disorder, which in its most extreme form, as you probably know, it can be very dangerous insofar as people act out their dreams, typically thinking that their home has been invaded, and uh, they end up killing uh, someone near and dear to them uh, in their family, thinking that it's a uh, a burglar instead. My wife's a prosecutor. She, she tends to think this is simply... Uh, 
nonsense invented by defense attorneys. But in fact, I I, I co-wrote an article on this subject, and uh, there are instances as early as as the Middle Ages. It's not to say that defense attorneys won't take advantage of it, but it is a legitimate sleep disorder. In my own case, I knew for sure that I suffered from a mild instance when I dreamt I was playing American football and suddenly tackled my nightstand on the side of our bed and my wife looked down on me on the floor and and, and very dryly observed uh, perhaps it was time to dust off our children's bed rails. <laughs> uh, well, I don't have those bed rails, but I, I do have a more sophisticated bed rail to keep me from doing harm to myself or uh, my wife or anyone. And I currently take medication, which uh, fortunately, what I take is also commonly prescribed for restless leg syndrome. So, um, Roger, you you spoke about the REM behavior disorder in history, or in my reading, sort of as an amateur into sleep history, we see things like sleep sleep paralysis, um, which people often report as being terrifying, like someone sitting on top of them. And I think it's in Newfoundland, they, they refer to this as the hag. Um, in other cultures in Africa, they talk about like a witch sitting on top of them, and it seems to be like a black or dark figure holding them down in sleep paralysis. And sleep paralysis, for those interested, is basically you're, you're asleep, so you've got all the kind of attributes of being in REM. You've got musculatonia, so your body's not moving, your airway is open. But then you kind of have this transitory thing where you where you actually wake up but your body's nearly still in REM and so you can't move but people often attribute this to, to that the hag like in, in Newfoundland or or this witch in other cultures have, have you seen that in research Roger have you seen that in what you've what you've been reading of course in the British Isles it was quite common it was a legitimate concern the night hag was the term that was used there and there is a there's a tremendous painting depicting a uh, a demon uh, atop a woman's chest at night uh, by the uh, late 18th, early 19th century artist Henry Fuseli. Uh, I believe the title of the painting is uh, Nightmare. Uh, this was a very real concern, and it's precisely as you describe. Uh, people felt paralyzed. Roger, are you still there? Hello, Roger. Hello. Okay, and that was Professor Roger E. Kirch. Great episode. Really enjoyed that. Roger is a very passionate guy, and we often look at history as a bit of a boring subject, and Roger really makes it interesting. You know, outside of sleep research, I love reading history, you know, from nearly any period. I love history podcasts such as Dan Carlin or History on Fire by Daniele Bolelli. So, for me, this this subject was really interesting, and it's it's interesting as a scientist to go back and look at how the scientific field developed, but also how culture and society has developed over time as well. And so, Roger really delved into some of those societal issues that really formed how we sleep today, which I think, on reflection, we probably don't look at. Um, 
look at that issue very much in the sleep research area whilst uh, sleep science papers are, are increasing that's a great thing you know we should kind of sometimes pause and look at how we came to this point so really enjoyed that uh, conversation with roger now if you're interested in following roger roger is on twitter he is at a-r-e kirch k-i-r-c-h that will be in the show notes so look in the show notes there on the app and click on the, the show notes to go there and follow roger on twitter you can also write in Roger E. Kirch, uh, E-K-I-R-C-H, into Google and you will find a Wikipedia page. You will also find more about Roger at Virginia Tech um, and you can find his books and courses and uh, you know a whole host of information there from Roger. And as you would have heard in the episode, there is you know a number of other books that, that Roger has written. So... You know, if you're interested in those, go and look at those. Uh, he's got a lot of books, a lot of writing. This man is uh, is prolific, so it was great having him on the podcast. So, hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, sleep well.